And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, February 15th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, how to be a successful information security officer in 2024. Plus, Health and Human Services pushes better cybersecurity across the health sector. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, big changes on the way for the Air Force and Space Force. Senior officials just unveiled a sweeping set of plans that will reshape the service's very structures. Maybe one of the most significant reorganizations since the end of the Cold War. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has more. Anastasia, what are they doing here? Give us the uh, give us the outlines. So many changes. First of all, and I think this is one of the major changes, they are creating a new command. The command is called Integrated Capabilities Command, and it's kind of all in, in the name. It will be this centralized place that will be doing future planning. It will be putting together requirements because usually it falls on commands to determine their requirements and they're responsible for their own future planning. But now the Air Force will have this centralized hub and the commands will be able to focus on daily operations rather than on future planning. So it sounds like they're taking a little bit of the authority away from the MAGCOMs, as they call them, in the Air Force. Definitely, definitely. And at the same time, they're also standing up an integrated capabilities office. That office will kind of prioritize investments, mostly modernization investments, and the office and the command will be working together very closely in the coming years. And the Air Combat Command, then, sounds like that could be a little bit less authoritative than before, concentrating on actual operations as opposed to planning and budgeting, programming and execution. Yes, correct. What led to this? Why are they doing this? So about two years ago, Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall, he introduced this concept of operational imperatives. That was more of a roadmap to bring in technology and realign investments. It was just about modernization in general. Those operational imperatives, they were focused on mostly systems. So, for example, they were looking to identify and then invest in specific applications for the advanced battle management system. And that's the system uh, that provides a secure communication for airmen. So last September, he wrote an open letter to airmen and guardians where he said the service is not as ready as it could be for a potential conflict. He said the service is optimized to support the post-9-11 environment, but the world has changed. So he ordered a sweeping review of the service. He wanted a review of everything, how they organize, how they train, how they equip the Air Force and Space Force. Here's acting undersecretary of the Air Force, Kristen Jones. We realized that we needed more enterprise solutions deliberate integration. We needed to prioritize mission success over function. And we needed to make sure that we were doing all of that for one department with two services. That was acting undersecretary of the Air Force, Kristen Jones. Sounds as if they're talking about everything but modernizing the fleet itself, because that's expensive. And every modernization platform they have, the tanker, The new fifth-generation fighter is mired in overruns years and years and years late, and they're already 
having to backfill the original copies to get them up to date with what the new copies are doing. So it sounds like they're doing a lot of work on everything to support flying what it is they have to fly with. Yes, that's correct. They are mostly focused on areas like personnel, readiness, power projection, a little bit of capability developments, but not really on aircrafts themselves. Okay, because they have some cooking. They do have a new bomber cooking, and I think it actually got airborne once, but so another 25 years it might carry bombs. Let's talk about personnel then. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a lot of change in store for for how they train and and manage their people. Yes. So they decided that they're going to bring back warrant officers, but that is specific to IT and cyber fields. It's a big change for the Air Force just because they decided to phase out its warrant officer program almost 50 years ago. I think it was in 1959, and the last active duty warrant officer retired in 1980. The Air Force decided that warrant officers are kind of in-betweeners, between enlisted and commissioned officer levels. They just made a decision that it was inconvenient to have another rank, and they got rid of it, and they decided to streamline the ranking system. Other military branches use a warrant officer program, and they use it for different fields like aviation, logistics, engineering, um, but the Air Force doesn't. So this is a big change. These officers will provide technical expertise only in cyber operations and technology, though. Right. So this will come from existing ranks because they don't have congressional authority to greatly expand the number of people billets in the Air Force. Yes, correct. When do they say this will all be done? And, you know, once again, what do they hope will be the effect of these changes? So they said that they're finalizing the details regarding all of the decisions. And by the way, it's 24 key decisions that they announced this week. Kendall said that Each decision will have a timeline for planning and execution, and that will vary from immediate to maybe over a year. But also an important thing to remember is that Kendall is a political appointee, so he might have to leave at the end um, of President Joe Biden's current term, which might affect all of these plans. Yes. Well, that's an unpredictable, a totally unpredictable situation. But otherwise, they want to get started on some of the changes right away. Like the warrant officers, that could happen, what, next year? Yes, possibly. Again, they introduced 24 key decisions. Some of them are a lot easier to implement than others. For example, I want to highlight one more thing. One big change is that they will elevate Air Force Cyber. That's currently under Air Combat Command, but it will be a standalone service component. Changes like that are big. It might possibly take over a year. All right. Well, we're going to keep an eye on it, as I know you will. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, Health and Human Services pushes better cybersecurity across the health sector. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Between constant ransomware and medical device software scares, the healthcare sector has become a scary place for cybersecurity. Now the Health and Human Services Department is asking organizations in the healthcare sector to adopt what it calls high-impact cybersecurity practices. We get detail now from the Deputy Director of the Office of Preparedness, Brian Mazanek. Mr. Mazanek, good to have you back. 
Thanks, Tom. Happy to be here. And we should point out you're back in your role at HHS rather than your prior role at the Government Accountability Office. So nice to see people move around and still be on the show. And this is the issuing organization for these standards is the Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response. What's coming from whom here? The Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response, or ASPR, is an operating division within HHS that is focused on assisting the country in preparing for and responding to and recovering from public health emergencies and disasters. The role we play as it pertains to cybersecurity is we serve as the lead for the department's role as Sector Risk Management Agency, or SRMA, for the healthcare and public health HPH sector. So there's 16 critical infrastructure sectors that have been designated. The healthcare and public health one is one of them, and we serve as sort of that quarterback or belly button within the department. We don't do everything across the department. There are other key players like the Food and Drug Administration for medical devices, but we coordinate all of that as the SRMA lead and are the central, quote-unquote, one-stop shop for the department in, in doing so. And there have been some highly celebrated, highly recognized ransomware attacks on healthcare delivering organizations, hospitals. Is this part of what's prompting the idea of uh, cybersecurity performance goals? Absolutely. So while we've been doing a number of things to try to help the healthcare and public health sector bolster its cybersecurity posture to be able to deal with these threats, the threats themselves have been increasing in intensity and sophistication, particularly, as you mentioned, ransomware attacks. We're focused on all things related to cybersecurity in the sector, and obviously any malicious activity is of concern, but the ransomware attacks are particularly concerning because they lock down certain systems within a hospital, for example, and demand payment or a ransom. And when they do so, they really pose an immediate threat to patient health and safety. So imagine going to a hospital or an emergency room, and if they can't use the MRI machine or access your electronic medical records to know you're allergic to penicillin, obviously the consequences there are pretty acute. And we believe cybersecurity is patient safety, and we're very focused on that. But to your question, absolutely, the ransomware activity has been increasing year over year. I just saw this morning that this was not specific to our sector, but broadly across the board, an industry report came out that identified that the victims of ransomware attacks paid over $1.1 billion dollars in 2023, and that's compared to about $570 million in 2022. So criminal actors, there are state actors in the mix, and the healthcare and public health sector in particular, for reasons I kind of just alluded to, is particularly vulnerable. There's a lot of pressure to, frankly, pay the ransom. So it's a sector that has historically paid. And it's also a place where you have a lot of legacy medical devices, a very complicated environment, a sector that is also, especially some of the rural and Critical access hospitals really don't have big margins. I wanted to ask you this, too. We learned a couple of years ago in the Colonial Pipeline episode that there is a connection, a crossover between operational technology, which has traditionally maybe not been on the Internet, and the information systems that are on the Internet in sectors. It sounds like that's true in the healthcare sector also. You've got this big operational hospital device complex but then they have standard information systems with everybody on email, et cetera. It's an incredibly complicated environment. You have billing as well, which is very important for the hospital system. So any of those systems are affected. And often with a ransomware attack, if a, an actor gets into they will move par in a parallel way across systems, too, if they have that ability, and will lock down multiple things. It won't necessarily just be the X-ray machines, for example, that are down, but it's a broader consequence for the system. And we've seen, unfortunately, more and more ransomware attacks that aren't targeting a single 
hospital or a healthcare delivery organization. We see those, but we're seeing attacks that are affecting hospitals, networks that are multi-state, you know, dozens of hospitals. So very, very concerning. And that's why, to go back to the cybersecurity performance goals, that's why we felt like we needed to do more. And the department is undertaking a number of steps to re-level up our activity to better support the sector as this threat increases. We are speaking with Brian Mazinek, Deputy Director of the Office of Preparedness at HHS. That's at Health and Human Services. Therefore, what are the standards you're pushing and how are you getting the word out to the organizations? We have heard, as we've worked with our partners in the sector itself and elsewhere, we've heard that there's a need to harmonize cybersecurity standards. There's confusion over which standards to follow, which apply most directly to the healthcare and public health sector. So we undertook this effort in partnership with industry that this was informed by their input on on other efforts and and products that we've developed in the past to develop these healthcare um, and public health sector cybersecurity performance goals. They're intended to provide both a floor as well as an advanced level of guidance that is clear, accessible at all all different levels. You don't have to necessarily be an an IT administrator to pick these up and use them to minimum standards that address a number of the threats that we've seen based on our work in the sector. So you can be better able to prevent. And then if you are affected by a ransomware attack, respond to and recover from those attacks. And we break them into essential goals, which again, are kind of view them as sort of that floor that are the baseline that we think everyone in the sector should adhere to. These are voluntary, but we think these are good best practices. And then we have those enhanced goals, which are for the better resourced or more capable entities to really do even more to prepare for these kind of cyber attacks. And by the way, as more health organizations offer telehealth, that kind of mixes the ecosystems of their own and those of everybody that could be on a telehealth session. Yes, absolutely. And these cybersecurity performance goals for the sector will help in all of those contexts. They will harden systems in a variety of ways to protect the sector. And do you have tailored, let's say, standards for some small clinic that has maybe three medical doctors there and a few nurses and a couple of administrators versus, you know, a mass general type of situation. Yeah. So the essential goals are really targeted to those less well-resourced or smaller entities as sort of, the again, the floor, really the place to start if you need to make more progress in this area. Um, something that informed our development of these cybersecurity performance goals is another resource we've developed called the Hiccup, the Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity Practices Guide, which we developed jointly with industry. And we map the CPGs directly to those as well as other existing guidance. So again, to simplify, we show how this is all connected and they culminate in this one reference that you can pick up and know what to do. But the Hiccup, which informed a lot of this, actually also breaks out a lot of its resources, its how-to guides by large and small entity. So it's another way, if you're small, to know where do you get started in this space. And we mapped in the CPG document itself, we mapped with links directly to all those resources to make it as user-friendly as possible. Because again, we heard from the sector, there needs to be simplicity here, need to understand what you need to do and, and eliminate some of the noise and confusion in this space. Because in theory, you know, there is one ecosystem, just like, you know, how many roads are there in the United States? Well, just one, because they're all connected and you can drive anywhere to anywhere. And as more interdependent technologies, such as through the electronic health records, come among healthcare organizations, something happens at a local clinic, and all of a sudden you're in a hospital, your electronic record goes there, there's much more, I guess, chance for cross-fertilization of malware happening in the sector. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an ecosystem is the right word for it. And we do see some of the same ransomware actors attacking the same vulnerability repeatedly in different entities, which is, again, why one of our first, actually the first essential goal that you'll see when you look at the CPGs is mitigating known exploited vulnerabilities to reduce the likelihood of an actor rippling through multiple hospitals that all have the same vulnerability because for, for whatever reason. So ab- absolutely, it's an ecosystem. And there are also cross-sector dependencies too. So if the power uh, sector goes out, that has an effect as well. We work closely with our interagency partners, the other sector risk management agencies on that front as well. And you said they're voluntary. Of course, these are organizations that are in the private sector. Is there any kind of incentive that you can give them? I mean, do they get a gold star to put on the door? Hey, we're cyber secure. Yeah, a great point. Again, we really want to emphasize these are voluntary cybersecurity practices that we think will help our partners understand the key practices to secure their systems, improve their cybersecurity. But we know we need to do more to encourage and support their adoption. So this was actually, if you go back to December, we rolled out a new roadmap for the department. This rollout of the cybersecurity performance goals, the CPGs, was one of four pillars of our new roadmap. The others, and they are all sort of interlocking and mutually supporting, the second pillow was to provide more resources to incentivize the implementation of these practices. So we are working right now with Congress to obtain new authority and funding to administer financial support and incentives for domestic hospitals to implement these high-impact cybersecurity practices. That was the second pillar of the strategy, so they're very much interconnected. And by the way, just as an aside, what is the progress of electronic health records in the industry relative to, say, 10, 12 years ago? Yeah, there's enormous adoption, and it's been a tremendous uh, journey. The the perverse kind of dynamic, though, unfortunately, is as we've taken advantage of that and, and pushed the adoption of, of EHRs across the enterprise, that does make it harder for entities to navigate a, a cybersecurity ransomware attack that, that locks down the EHRs. So again, going back to the cybersecurity performance goals, one of the things on the enhanced goals pertains to the incident planning and preparedness, which is all about consistently maintaining, drilling, updating your cyber incident response plans, which should include how you operate on downtime procedures with paper records. So if your system is locked out, how do you provide essential care? And for some new physicians and medical providers, that's a new thing for them that they need to really learn and exercise. So that is also, again, is another example, something that's embedded inside these cybersecurity performance goals to prepare you to navigate that paper driven world that many folks aren't familiar with because of the success of EHR adoption. Yes, I remember when the main piece of information technology that a doctor would have was a fountain pen. (laughs) Yep. Sometimes that's a critical tool in navigating a ransomware attack. All right. Yeah, writing checks. Brian Mazanek is Deputy Director of the Office of Preparedness at Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash federal drive. Hear the Federal Drive On Demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, contractors say a new Pentagon procurement rule could undermine people with disabilities. But first, how to be a successful information security officer in 2024. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. Because technology changes, cybersecurity threats change, which means cybersecurity practitioners must keep moving to stay on top of their game. 
For my next guest, the top 10 skills of chief information security officers will need in 2024. They go beyond technology, though. He's director of the CERT division of the Software Engineering Institute, Greg Tuhill. Greg, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. So you've outlined 10 skills for CISOs in the coming year, and Lord knows with artificial intelligence and better phishing and yada, 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 things are getting worse. But these are not necessarily technology skills, are they? No. Frankly, senior executives expect the chief information security officer to act as a senior business executive first and the technologist second. So making sure that the chief information security officer is working as a senior business executive and translating technology into the language of business is a key and essential skill. All right. But they say that of the CIO, too. So how do they differ? Well, the focus of the CIO and the CISO, or I pronounce it CISO, they're intertwined. So both of them have to be acting as senior business leaders. When it comes to the chief information security officer, the language of the business is centered on risk, driving the business's value, profit and loss, reputation and growth. So is the CIO, but the focus is on capability for the CIO and for the CISO, it centers on risk. Sure. And getting to your list, number one, though, is master AI before it masters you. And this is something Congress is grappling with. Members of Congress think they need to regulate it, but they don't understand it. Agencies are figuring out how to inculcate it for the chief information security officer. Explain more about how they can master AI before it masters them. Well, you know, here at Carnegie Mellon, we have some of the world's leading experts on artificial intelligence engineering. Folks are actually building out the different capabilities. Even the Army has put their AI Innovation Center here, co-located with Carnegie Mellon. When you take a look at the rapid advance of capabilities in artificial intelligence, generative AI has really put AI on the top of the map in 2023, replacing zero trust as the buzzword de jour in a lot of places. But understanding the different flavors of AI and how to secure your data in that environment is critically important for CISOs today and into the future. A great example is with generative AI. What do you do if somebody from within your organization puts sensitive information into the prompt for a generative AI, causing a spillage perhaps of personally identifiable information, classified information, intellectual property. Knowing ahead of time how to deal with that is important, but even better is how to prevent it, how to educate your workforce, understanding your data, setting up the labels so that folks know, don't put this into a generative AI prompt because once it goes in, it'll never come out. Yeah, I understand prompt training is emerging as a field of endeavor for people to understand because you know you might need a four-page text prompt to get what you want, and at the same time, as you say, you can't put in sensitive information or something that might invoke it. Right. And then further, with a broader sense of AI writ large, if you're going to be entering a, a contract with an AI company and using some of their models and the data that those models are consuming, 
understanding where that data came from, whether it is ethically sourced, do the companies have the rights to use that data? All of that becomes very important, particularly as we see, uh, for example, the European Union has just put together an artificial intelligence act. It comes with fines if you are not using data that you have the rights to use. So there's a lot of questions out there that the CISOs need to invest their knowledge into so they can master AI before it masters them. We're speaking with Greg Tuhill. He is director of the CERT division of the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. Earlier, you mentioned risk, and on your list is manage risk using advanced metrics and risk quantification. I think that also, though, relates to that idea of improving communications with the board and the C-suite because they know risk is everywhere they look. Maybe this chief information security officer can advise them on a risk management approach because you can't eliminate all risk in this life. Right. And one thing I learned as a combat leader in the military is those who try to manage risk to zero will always end up uh, losing, being disappointed and broke. So, you know, as you take a look at risk management, and we teach a lot of great courses here at Carnegie Mellon for executives and CISOs and, you know, all, all types of students. We've reinforced the fact that as you are looking at risk, you need to be able to actually measure outcomes. And evidence trumps anecdotes is what I put in the article. But as you are, as a CISO, trying to articulate that risk, you need to do so in terms of the language of business. You need to be discussing what the risk is to the value of the business. How does it affect the profit and loss status of the company? Being able to quantify and qualify reputational risk, showing where growth could be impeded. I, we're going to lose customers, investors, uh, our trajectory is going to be adversely affected in this particular manner. But being able to quantify and qualify those risks is part of the research that we are doing here at the Software Engineering Institute and sharing with our government and military partners and uh, more information is available at sei.cmu.edu, uh, our website where we post a lot of our releasable information. And the better you can rank and quantify the risk, then the better you can create a reasonable budget and a way to operate the CISO operation so that you can get at the most important risks and leverage your money most effectively. Fair to say? Absolutely. And then further, you're going to be put in a better position to demonstrate your return on investment when you have the data to back it up. What about mastering the art of negotiation? Who do uh, CISOs need to negotiate with? The CISOs need to negotiate up, down, across, and out. So it's really kind of a uh, three-dimensional picture. As a CISO, you need to be able to, we'll start with down. Uh, as, as you are trying to build out your budget and build out your programs, you need to make sure you have the right team in place and the team is all uh, synchronized well with you. As you are uh, looking to promote your programs, like the user education and making sure that folks are following due care and due diligence across the entire organization, you need to be able to have the negotiation skills to convince folks that these are the right things to do. It's more than just to check the box. It's a, a really not just a security team responsibility to protect the organization, but the whole team. Further, you need to be able to convince folks up the chain, as well as your senior peers, 
to make those investments in cybersecurity to protect the business and to facilitate its growth and opportunities. And then finally, you need to be working with the ecosystem of partners that you have. Those third-party providers where you're sharing some of your data and having them be the custodians of your data, you need to make sure that you have those solid relationships to get the most value for the organization with the partners that you uh, form. So I view it as a three-dimensional relationship that you're going to need to be able to maintain in all aspects of the CISO job, up, down, across, and out. Yeah, and that idea of negotiating relates to one of your points, which is thinking beyond enterprise IT to the operational control systems, automated manufacturing platforms, all of that stuff, because then you're dealing with a whole different set of people and different operations within the organization from the people that operate the regular enterprise IT and all the users with their smartphones. Yeah, absolutely. And as you take a look at all the different constituencies the CISO operates with and serves, they all speak a different language. So the CISO needs to be able to master the languages of the different constituencies that are out there. And it's really important as we take a look at operational technology, manufacturing technologies, even third-party providers that you are sharing corporate information and data with. You know, those third-party folks that are custodians of your data are an important part of your enterprise. So being able to speak the language with each one of the constituencies that you work with and serve is critically important for organizational success. Greg Tuhill is director of the CERT division of the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about those top 10 skills for CISOs at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, contractors say a new Pentagon procurement rule could undermine people with disabilities. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. A new rule is expected any day now to overhaul how the Defense Department buys from the Ability One program. That's the vehicle for nonprofit employers of people with disabilities to deliver goods and services to the government. Contractors under Ability One worry the new rule will hinder a chief program goal of helping those very employees. For details, we turn to the president and CEO of Melwood, Larissa Kautz. Ms. Kautz, good to have you with us. Good to be with you, Tom. Thank you. Briefly, give us where Melwood fits within the apparatus that is the Ability One program serving federal agencies in the Defense Department. Sure, Tom. Uh, we are one of the top of the 400 agencies around the country that serve as Ability One contractors. We're a nonprofit, uh, we're a leading employer advocate and preferred provider for people with disabilities. We have about 60 different federal contract sites around the DC region. And what types of goods and services do you generally operate with? So we do custodial, uh, we do landscaping, we actually grow all of the flowers for the Kennedy Center in our greenhouses, and we do all the landscaping there. We have a top secret facility clearance because we make sure that the Attorney General, General's office is clean and the State Department, Fort Meade, we do building maintenance. I like to say that we help run the government. 
All right. Well, next time I'm at the opera, I'm going to take a close-up look at the flowers at the Kennedy Center, and I'll say, I know where those came from. There's a new rule that is about to come out any day now from the Defense Department, I guess it is, from the, the controlling authorities for Ability One, and you're concerned that this could make it tougher for companies, nonprofits like yours, and disrupt longstanding practice. What, in general, do you expect the rule to look like? Uh, so, Tom, you know, the DOD did a review of the Ability One program a few years ago. It was very in-depth, and it had proposals to modernize the program, one of which is to add uh, a level of competition to the program to ensure that the contractors are performing with excellence and that there's a chance to uh, do a price competition potentially every five years for the contracts. Now, this has been reviewed by the Ability One Commission, and the proposed rule, which is now in its final stages and expected to come out soon, proposes to compete contracts, uh, at least the proposed rule, proposes to compete contracts that are above $2 million a year, which will involve a very, very large number of contracts in the program, and basically focuses on price um, as the main differentiator between nonprofits competing for that. It does not look at the biggest bottom line value proposition of the program, which is job creation. And it, it, there's this trade-off in the program between price and employment. If we lower our price to the lowest possible amount, we will be hiring the people who are least significantly disabled, who are more productive. We'll be cutting costs with respect to coaching and job coaching and counseling and accommodations. You know, if we really go to the, the bottom line of lowering price at any cost, it's not going to help achieve the mission of the program. The The program's bottom line value is there is a return on investment to the government of this program beyond just the prices that the agencies are spending for the services. Um, we did a, a study with Virginia Tech last year that showed that the program reduces government spending by about $38,000 per person who's been employed sure. and served by Melwood. But this rule doesn't take into impact and calculations that value proposition and what impact it will be to have a lowest price, technically acceptable kind of a shootout <laughs> between sure. the nonprofits and how that'll impact the general return on investment. Right. And that $2 million that you mentioned, contract threshold, that is a significant reduction from the requirement for periodic competition now, which is $10 million? So the, the 898 panel, which was the DOD panel that proposed competition, um, they were the ones that set the proposed $10 million floor because, you know, they know that competition is a disruptor, right? Uh, this program was created to have long-term stable jobs for people with disabilities. And as long as the nonprofit is performing the work satisfactorily, we keep the contracts. We don't recompete them every five years. And so they knew that this would we would have to hire business development people and pricing experts and really fight for the contracts, which in my opinion is a waste of charitable dollars since we're all nonprofits. And we take the margin on these contracts and we reinvest it in the community. And so they set a $10 million floor. And they also said that social impact would be considered in the value proposition of the competition. Now, that has been completely left out of this proposed rule. Nearly 100 organizations, both the contractors and disability organizations and others, provided comments to the proposed rule with respect to both that threshold and the social impact not being part of it. Sure. And I'm just hoping that in the final rule that we see some move from the proposed rule back to the way that the DOD originally had proposed it. We're speaking with Larissa Kautz. She's the president and CEO of Melwood. And traditionally, people working in the Ability One contractors, because they're 
disabled, sometimes severely so, have received much lower wages than are prevailing for people that are fully abled under you know federal labor law. And there's been a move in the recent years to raise the level of pay that those people receive because reasoning is, well, they're working and they're providing value, so why shouldn't they get the same minimum wage as everyone else? Those two ideas seem to be in collision then, price competition plus you know, dramatic wage raises for people with disabilities working for the contractors. Absolutely, Tom. And I, I love that you bring this up because it's exactly what the problem is with this proposed regulation. It's only looking at the price to the customer, and it's trying to drive down the price to the federal agencies. Meanwhile, in the background, there are policy shifts. There are other regulations being proposed to the program to modernize it, to make sure that everybody's being paid a competitive wage to make sure that we shore up as nonprofits the the vocational support and counseling that we do. A lot of those things are now becoming a priority and a requirement of the program. But at the same time, this regulation doesn't take any of that into account. If there was a balance in the regulation where social impact and price and technical proposal and past performance, if all of those were weighted equally, um, then the government would truly get the best value and the best benefit from each of those contracts. But really, truly just focusing on price, I think it doesn't acknowledge the real mission of this program, which is good jobs for people that are the most significantly disabled. And in a practical sense, these are not big ticket items in defense terms. I mean, it's not like you're supplying them the next generation of bomber, which has you know a trillion dollar life cycle cost. It's services, like you say, landscaping, cafeterias, flowers, pens and pencils, that kind of thing. It's significantly less than 1% of the DOD's budget. I mean, we're talking about half of a percent of the DOD's budget. And there's been so much time and effort and energy involved to really think through how to put competition into this program. When I just, you know, we just did a renegotiation for our Fort Meade contract. We saved the government $24 million over a five-year period by sitting across the table, opening up all of our books, really talking to them about the services that they need on the ground and we even, you know, we got a write-up um, in an article that said that they were they were extremely satisfied and surprised by sort of that open kimono type of negotiation. That's what's possible in this program. And that's how this program was designed to run. I think by moving backwards to less transparency, to more competition with people bidding bare minimum amounts for the scope of the contract as it's drafted – which then leads to misperceptions, mods, you know, actually more money in the long run that's wasted in administration and right-sizing the contract kind of after the fact. I just wish that that had been investigated and quantified and thought about, but there really isn't much in this rule that shows a cost-benefit calculation in those terms. All right. We'll have to see what the final rule says. In the meantime, we've been speaking with Larissa Couch. She is the president and CEO of Melwood. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. It's a pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, every day this week, our special report will highlight the 85% of federal employees who work outside the Washington, D.C. region, led by those 28 federal executive boards nationwide. Check it out at federalnewsnetwork.com. The Defense Information Systems Agency has polished off many of the rough edges of its network consolidation effort known as DODNet. Two years after making the $11 billion contract award, under the Defense Enclave Services Initiative, 
DISA is preparing to expand the number of DODNet users and capabilities. At the AFCEA West Conference in San Diego, Federal News Network's Jason Miller got more from DISA's DODNet program manager, Carissa Landymore. We currently are supporting DPAA, DTIC, and DISA, roughly 30,000 users across both the Nippernet and Sippernet. We've been supporting them now for quite some time, but we're looking to continue to expand. We're working with the other defense agencies across the department uh, to plan for their upcoming migration. So a lot going on in FY24 um, and looking ahead in FY25 to to wrap up those virtual discoveries, looking at the existing network infrastructure uh, for each one of those defense agencies and coming up with that migration plan. The three agencies you mentioned, you about 30,000 people are supporting. These are, you're supporting the day-to-day commonplace IT operations. What, what DODNet and, and, and the Defense Enclave Service is really trying to do is, is say to these agencies, hey, you don't have to worry about the compute, the desktops, the mobile devices. Is that the, that's really the end goal of DODNet plus the consolidation. When we think about the common IT, that's really what we're what we're focused on. Um, also, but down to the plate, right? All of the cables behind the scenes. Some of the organizations that we're supporting as well are also looking for adoption um, or are you know, management of their conference rooms as well. We're also looking to expand that into wireless. So that's what we're talking about. And anytime any of those DAFAs have an issue or need any support, we also have our global service desk, our tier one support. So those folks can put in their tickets, route it through there, and then we handle all of that backend support as well um, down to the end point, and they, they can receive support to resolve those issues uh, via that method as well. Now, I remember when the Defense Enclave Services and contract was let, there was a lot of excitement around it. Has it been kind of gaining some steam over the last year or two as you get more people interested? You mentioned uh, 2024 and beyond. What are you starting to see in terms of, of, of the education side of getting folks to say, oh, this is not only good for us, we should be more aggressive on, on using the capabilities and the services? A lot of the defense agencies are starting to see that, you know, there's a lot of benefits of going ahead and fast-tracking that deployment. Let's get in there working with DISA, get these virtual discovery contracts, the design and planning efforts underway so we can transfer the management of these networks over to DISA. One of the things uh, we're looking at as well is something called tech debt. This is where part of those virtual discoveries, we learned that the defense agencies need some support. They need to be able to update and modernize that back and infrastructure. So we're working with the DOD CIO's office and our partners inside DISO, of course, to identify those funds so that we can help them upgrade that infrastructure and help fast-track those deployments. One of the things you also are starting to do, I think that sounds like it's new for 2024, is looking at the migrations in two buckets, the end user or endpoint. So that could be my desktop, my computer, could be any number of things. Then you're also saying the infrastructure piece. So walk me through what's new in 2024 and how that's going to help accelerate some of the changes. One of the things we're trying to do with our, our Gen 2 evolution, if you will, is really be able to posture ourselves to onboard those DAFAs faster, more seamlessly and efficiently. And really what that means is looking at 
the overall migration and seeing how we can deploy things or migrate these users in a multi-phased approach. Phase one could potentially be focusing on those endpoints. Can we look at leveraging some of the cloud tools that are out there today, such as ABD, which, you know, or virtual desktop as a service, and be able to migrate those users' endpoints first, while in parallel also working on the network migration. So that way, we can take care of their endpoints, start managing those endpoints for them, while in parallel we can work on upgrading the cables, the stuff behind the, the wall plate there, because that's really what's going to take a bit of time to, to, to migrate, so we can help the user there as well, taking that multi-phased approach. The Don CIO, Jane Rathbun, spoke at FCOS and talked about a migration that the Navy recently did to the VDI. Is that the type of thing you're starting to see where people are going, oh, we could do this piece of it and we could do it fairly quickly? She mentioned something effective. It went from thirty or 40,000 users to over 100,000 users fairly quickly. Using that as an example, is that the type of thing you're hoping the other of the defense agencies and service, military services are, are starting to consider? That's what we're seeing, and that's what we're hoping to see as well. So we've just expanded our pilot to DISA, so we can start to kick the tires with that VDI capability, work on our operational process, and our goal is to have that ready to declare IOC by the end of May and ready to uh, deploy out to the to the DAFAs. A lot of the DAFAs, uh, DLA in particular, is a big user of a VDI capability. We want to make sure we are prepped to support them and, VD- and have our VDAS capability or virtual desktop as a service ready to go. I think that there's also some opportunities from a costing perspective that we're looking into. We're, we're doing the analysis but right now, but I, we do believe that there's going to be some opportunities there. And one of the use cases that we're seeing right now at DISA is looking at our contractor users where they won't need a GFE, government furnished equipment, and then also have their contractor laptop. Now they'll be able to use their contractor laptop, plug in a CAC reader, and then they'll be able to, to log in via VDI and be right in, you know, into DISA's DODNet network and then try to improve that experience by having one laptop and being able to use it anywhere, anytime, any device. You mentioned Generation 2 of DODNet. What's that going to mean? What's that? What are some of those new capabilities that are going to be included. You mentioned, obviously, VDI as a service is one. What are some of the other things that folks can can expect? So more automation. We want to bring greater agility. And and really what we mean by that is decreasing that hardware footprint that enables us to bring on more automation. So there's going to be tools out there that we we plan to adopt and leverage other DISA services as well, such as ServiceNow, so that we can uh, bring that automation, increase our onboarding effort as well. That automation will help us do that through through ServiceNow. You'll also see us roll out other capabilities such as Ansible and Eternity that will also help us come up with a smoother processes and increase that automation. Enhanced security. So adaptive and sustainable threat protection, that's going to be another one which will also help us create a more simplified architecture. We talk about improved user experience with VDAS. That's obviously a big one when we talk about enhanced tools and, and streamlined processes. Um, also to help improve that traffic workflow. And then lastly, we talked about that modernized infrastructure. And, and really what we're talking about there is converging our enterprise framework so that it's uh, more central to, uh, to be able to manage this overall architecture coming up with different dashboards that we'll be able to have up on a screen and the team will be able to see and track the performance real time and see what's going, what's going on behind the scenes.
You mentioned some other agencies are moving along, uh, some of the bigger ones, DLA, DCMA, DCAA. What's the plan to get them going in 2024 and to start adopting some of these new capabilities in Gen 2? We're working with most of the organizations you just mentioned to wrap up their virtual discovery and physical discovery and move right into the design and planning. So a lot of these organizations have a lot of different buildings that have to be migrated. And so doing that virtual discovery and and getting a a snapshot into their existing footprint and coming up with our migration plan is where we are today. So I want to say most, if not all, uh, we'll go with most of the DAFAs have completed their virtual discovery and and, or physical discovery and are entering into that design and planning phase into uh, the rest of FY24. And then looking ahead in 25, we'll start with those migrations, those cutovers to the DOD net. That will take you from about 30,000 folks using the DoD net to well over 100,000 folks, I would imagine, or something close to that. Is, is that a concern around the impact on the network? You've done, I'm sure you've done the load balancing, the user testing, make sure that it can support, you know, hundreds of thousands of users. Yeah, so that's where Gen 2 is huge because we, we look across what's to come uh, next year and the year after and the scalability, that posturing I mentioned where we're bringing in additional capabilities to be able to posture us, to be able to handle that additional workload, that's really what Gen 2 will provide us. Carissa Landymore, the DOD Net Program Manager at the Defense Information Systems Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.